Amen. Well, Joel, it is good to have you back here with us, and uh, glad you've gotten moved in and all, so God bless you, man. Well, uh, Franklin Graham has uh, called upon our, our nation today for a time of fasting and prayer, and I know Joel has just led us in prayer, but um, I'd like to answer that call today with our church and join our hearts with uh, churches all over this country who are praying today. So let's go before the Lord in uh, a time of prayer before we begin our message this morning. Our Father, we come and bow humbly before your throne, our great God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We recognize you as our only sovereign, as the only true God. We acknowledge Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, the only one in whom we can find hope, the only one who can bring life and forgiveness as we trust in him. And Father, we come today and join our hearts and join our prayers with those who are praying all over our country today as we seek your face for our nation. We pray, O oh God, that you'd have mercy on us. We pray that you'd help us, that you'd extend your gracious hand of mercy, that you'd give us a reprieve from your judgment. If we pray, Father, there might be a great turning to you, that there might be a repentance and revival that would sweep our land and people would realize that you're the only true God, that you're the only hope for our nation, for us individually, for our families, for this nation. Father, I pray that you'd move each one of us here to repent of sin in our own lives. It's one thing to say, woe is me for the sin of our culture, but Father, we need to, to look at our own lives and examine ourselves so that we can be pure vessels that you can use. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses and ambassadors for you in our own time. Father, as we open your word now, your inspired and errant word, we pray that you'd give us open hearts and open minds as we yield ourselves now to the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to Faith Bible Church this morning. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here that you've come to spend this Lord's Day with us. So, uh, welcome. We're in an exposition right now of the book of Daniel, and we've titled this series, The End Time and the Meantime. And if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, we've made our way in this study now to the seventh chapter. So we've made our way now to the second half of the book. Now, most pastors and teachers, when they teach the book of Daniel, at least what I've seen a lot online, is they end in Daniel chapter 6. They don't cover the last half of the book. But uh, we're going to finish the book of Daniel. I would never leave you hanging like that. So we're going to finish the rest of the book. Uh, these last six chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 through 12, contain some of the greatest revelations that we have anywhere in the Bible. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember that in Daniel 1 through 6, those first six chapters are six stories. They're six narratives. And they focus on the meantime. Uh, they focus on faithfulness in the present, uh, faithful living in the midst of a pagan culture. But as we move now to Daniel 7 through 12, we're going to move from six stories to four visions. Daniel 7 through 12 is four visions. And it's going to focus not on so much on the meantime as it's going to focus on the end time. It's not so much the faithful living in the present, but hope for the future. So one of the things we see here in Daniel clearly is that you and I navigate this world in light of the future world. We live in the meantime in light of uh, the end time. 
Now, let me read Daniel 7 for us here this morning. Let me read the first 10 verses to set this passage before us. And uh, you're going to see a lot of interesting imagery here. This is apocalyptic literature. A lot of symbols are used, but uh, we'll, we'll understand as we read the Scripture here this morning what these refer to. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat." After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the, the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. One time a pastor was asked by someone why he didn't ever preach on Bible prophecy. And his answer was, he says, because prophecy distracts people from the present. Well, the man who asked the question returned and said, well, the Bible then certainly has a lot of distraction. And that's true, isn't it? 28% of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. There are about 1,000 prophecies in the Bible. One out of every 25 New Testament verses is about the second coming of Christ. The Bible is full and brimming over with references uh, to the future. And it's been well said, if you want to find out what happened yesterday, read the newspaper. If you want to discover what happened today, watch cable news. If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, then read the Bible. Uh, there's certainly a lot of distraction in the Bible and one of the great distractions in the Bible is found in Daniel 7. Uh, this chapter we'll look at here over the next couple of weeks drags us across all of history from Daniel's day all the way to the end of the age. It leaps across the centuries from Daniel's time to the final judgment to the coming of Jesus and the inauguration and establishment of his kingdom on earth. And that's where all of history is headed ultimately. It's all headed ultimately uh, to the feet of Jesus. Uh, Dr. John Walvard, uh, one of my mentors at Dallas Seminary, he said this about, about Daniel 7, the seventh chapter of Daniel prov provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. 
Um, Among Jewish scribes who copied the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of Daniel was considered to be the greatest chapter in Scripture. Now, that's saying something. These Old Testament scribes in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, they said this was the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. So what I want to do just here for a moment before we get into this chapter is get a brief flyover of this chapter before we get into the details. Now, you can see in your outline there, I've got a few points there of kind of this outline for Daniel. Verses 1 to 14 in this chapter is the vision Daniel receives. I call it the experience of the vision. The beginning in verse 15 through verse 27 is going to be the explanation of the vision. Now, remember earlier on in the book, Daniel's explaining everybody else's dreams and visions, but now he has to have this one explained for him. And then down in verse 28, we have the effect of this vision on Daniel. But the key to this chapter is the word kingdom. Eleven times you'll find that word in English. In this vision, Daniel learned about six kingdoms. And again, in your outline, you can kind of see this. This is kind of the flow of Daniel 7. We're going to have four kingdoms, four earthly kingdoms. And that's going to be finally replaced by the fifth kingdom, which is going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist, the final kingdom on this earth, human kingdom. Then there's going to be a judgment, and we're going to see that in verses 9 and 10. And then finally, we're going to get to the sixth kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Son of Man. So there's four kingdoms of this world. Then there's one kingdom of Satan that's going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist. Well, in this age. And then the last kingdom is the coming kingdom of the Messiah. But Paul Howe says it like this. Daniel is a story of kingdoms, human kingdoms that rise and fall, and God's kingdom that rises and remains. That's the theme of this chapter. Now, I've got three simple points here this morning in our outline. I want to look at these animals, these beasts. Then I want to look at the Antichrist, symbolized by this little horn. Then I want to close by just briefly looking at the Ancient of Days. We'll pick up uh, there next time in verses 9 and 10. But let's start here with these animals in verses 1 to 7. Uh, This is uh, the first time in the book that Daniel has his own dream. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision in his mind. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You remember in chapter 2, he has a vision or a dream in chapter 4. But this is the first time Daniel has one. Now, Daniel uh, Daniel chapter 7 here is a flashback. It's 14 years now before chapter 6. Because notice it's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's 553 B.C. Remember in chapter 5 of Daniel, Belshazzar gets killed. So we've gone back now actually between chapters 4 and 5 chronologically now in the book of Daniel. So it's 553 B.C. We left off with Daniel and the lion's den. That's 539. This is 14 years uh, earlier. But notice Daniel in his dream sees the four winds of heaven. Some think that refers to the sovereign activity of God. Others believe that it's just all the different forces that are at work here on earth. But he sees the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea here could be the Mediterranean Sea, if you take this literally. Or if you take it figuratively, the word sea is often used of humanity and nations in the Bible. The restless sea is a a frequent symbol in Scripture for the nations of this world. And so the nations here are symbolized by these wild beasts. 
We're going to see four of them coming up out of the great sea, out of the sea of humanity and the nations. Now, it's interesting. Even today, animals are often the symbols of nations. A lion represents Great Britain. Uh, The bear, we speak of the Russian bear. Of course, the eagle is the symbol of the United States. So even today, we have these, these animals that kind of represent kingdoms. And so here we're going to have these four animal kingdoms. Now, we're not left to our own imagination about the identity of these beasts. Go down to chapter uh, 7, verse 15. You'll notice Daniel here is distressed, and he wants an interpretation of this. And notice verse 17 says, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So we're not left to our own imagination to figure out what these beasts are. They're four kings or kingdoms or nations that will arise from the earth. Now notice here in this passage, these beasts don't come up all at once. They follow one another in sequence. They're not simultaneous. They are sequential. And it's the same sequence of empires that Nebuchadnezzar had seen back in his dream in Daniel chapter 2 in that great image. By the way, Daniel 2 in that vision was 50 years before this. Now, I've shown you this slide before of uh, this, this chiastic structure, this concentric structure, but Daniel 2 through 7 is kind of one unit. And in Daniel 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's great image, the four metals that pictures these four kingdoms. Then we're going to go to Daniel 7, and we're going to see the same empires pictured as wild beasts. In Daniel 3, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered from the fiery furnace. Daniel 6, Daniel delivered from the lion's den. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God. Chapter 5, Belshazzar, his grandson, is humbled by God. So you can see how these chapters are concentric and kind of work towards the middle. But the bookends of this section here are Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that highlight these empires uh, that are coming upon the earth. Now, there there are a lot of uh, similarities between Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, but there's also some differences. In Daniel 2, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now an angel has to interpret Daniel's dream. And in Daniel 2, we have world history from man's viewpoint, this great colossus, this great image of metals. But in Daniel 7, we have world history now from God's point of view. And here's a really good quote by H.A. Ironside, um, a great Bible teacher from years ago. He says, in the second chapter, when a Gentile king had a vision of the course of world empire, he saw the image of a man, a stately and noble figure that filled him with such admiration that he set up a similar statue to be worshipped as a god. But in his opening chapter of the second division, Daniel, the man of God, has a vision of the same empires. He sees them as four ravenous wild beasts of so brutal a character and so monstrous withal that no actual creatures could adequately set them forth. So man's picture of these kingdoms in Daniel 2, but now God's view of these human empires. They're pictured here as wild beasts, four beasts that rise from the sea of the nations in succession. Now, a good way to remember these beasts is LBLB. It's a lion and a bear and then a leopard and then a beast. And you can see these beasts here. Well, kind of there's been all kinds of depictions of them, but a lion and a bear and then a leopard with four wings and then this kind of terrible kind of nondescript beast uh, that's described here for us. But the first of these beasts is a lion, a lion with the wings of an eagle. Now, a lion is the king of the beasts, 
but an eagle is the king of the birds. So clearly this is a, the, the, the first of these great empires, and it represents the empire of Babylon. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, if you were to read Jeremiah's prophecy, he was a contemporary with Daniel, and he represents uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonian empire as both a lion and an eagle in the book of Jeremiah many, many times. Lions are found all over the walls of ancient Babylon. And of course, in the previous chapter, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. So the description of this lion here is the, the Babylonian kingdom. Now you notice it says, I kept looking at this, this empire, this person, until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. The description of this lion being lifted up to stand like a man and then given a man's heart or mind reminds us of how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. God made him like a beast for seven years. He, he crawled around on all fours. And then God finally restored his reason to him when he uh, repented. And so that's the picture here that we have here in verse 4 of the Babylonian Empire. The second beast Daniel sees is a bear. This symbolizes the empire of the Medo-Persians who defeated Babylon. We saw that back in chapter 5. Belshazzar was killed and Cyrus the Persian uh, takes over. And this bear is raised up on one side because the Persian part of the empire was more dominant or stronger than the Median part of the empire. So the details here are powerful. It's raised up on one side. It has three ribs in its mouth which picture the three nations of Lydia and Babylon and Egypt, which are nations that the Medo-Persians had conquered. But the armies of Medo-Persia did devour much flesh as they marched across the battlefields. Now, the third beast here is a leopard, but it's an interesting leopard. It's got four wings and four heads. And this represents the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And we're going to talk about this a lot more when we get to chapter 8. But the swift and speedy conquest of his army. I mean, a leopard is fast and it's, it's sudden and it's uh, striking ability. It strikes with swiftness. But this leopard has four wings, which makes it even faster. And this speaks of the lightning speed of the conquest of Alexander the Great. Within 10 years, Alexander conquered all the territory of the Median Medo Persian Empire, all the way over to the borders of India. And there's the, the statement, of course, a, tr a historic statement that's often attributed to him that he, he, got, he, he bowed down on his knees at the age of 33 and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. There's something arresting, though, here to me in verse 6. It says about the, this fourth beast, this leopard, it says at the very end of the verse, and dominion was given to it. Dominion was given to it. It's the same thing up in verse 4. A human mind was given to it. Think about this. This refers to Alexander the Great, and it's telling us no matter how powerful or brilliant a ruler may be, it's God who's in control. Dominion was given to Alexander the Great by God. All authority comes from God. God rules, and God overrules. And Alexander died an untimely death at the age of 33, and he was left without a successor. So his kingdom was divided among his four generals, and that's the four heads here on this leopard. By the way, this is, Daniel is writing this 200 years before, a little over 200 years before Alexander the Great will come on the scene. 
And it's the specificity of this prophecy. Four heads, it'll be divided into four parts. Well, there's a fourth beast here that receives the most attention. It's a, a terrible beast. In fact, it's so vicious and powerful, no known animal can adequately symbolize it. The first is like a lion and a bear and a leopard, but it's just this nondescript beast. And it represents the Roman Empire that replaced the Greek Empire. And the Roman Empire swept across the ancient world, crushing one nation after another until the empire extended from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Caspian Sea, from North Africa all the way to the Danube and the Rhine rivers in Europe. Egypt and Syria and Israel were under Roman dominion. Look down at verse 19 as Daniel gets the interpretation about this fourth beast. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder under its feet. And then look at verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread down and crush it. And this is exactly what the Roman Empire did. And this terrible beast here corresponds to the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2. So if I've got got another slide here, this is kind of one that shows all these beasts. Um, But the next one after this is... um, it shows the, the parallels between these. You have Babylon in, in chapter 2 is the head of gold. Here it's this lion. Medo-Persia is the chest and arms of silver. It's a bear here. The belly and thighs of bronze was Greece uh, by a leopard in Daniel 7. And then the legs of iron are Rome. And again, it pictures the two parts of the Roman Empire, the eastern and the western leg uh, of the Roman Empire. And then there's one other slide after this as well. <clears throat> again, you can just see head of gold, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then we're going to see here in just a moment that there's going to be a re- reuniting of the Roman Empire because in Daniel chapter 2, the image there that the feet and the ten toes are iron and clay, and we're going to see that this beast has ten horns. So again, it's a parallel here in, in these uh, two passages. Now again, this beast here has ten horns parallel to the ten toes in Daniel 2. And it symbolizes 10 kings who are going to come out of the Roman Empire and rule over it. Look down in chapter uh, 24 and uh, the beginning of the verse, I'm I'm sorry, verse 24, the beginning of the verse. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise, and another will arise after them. So the empires here, these beasts are successive. They're one after another, but these ten horns are simultaneous. They all rule at once. Now, I like to call this the G10. You know, hear today about the G7 and the G8 and the different groups. I call this the G10. And this will be the final form of the Roman Empire. Now, these ten kings that come out of the old Roman Empire, when I was growing up, I would hear things like, the world is going to be divided someday into ten regions. And these will be these, these ten kings. The, the whole globe will be divided into ten parts. And, you know, people have, have showed uh, you know, how, how many people have uh, uh, prophesied that in the past. Um, others will take these to be ten nations. 
And uh, they would look at the European economic community and the common market. And at one point in time, there actually were 10 nations there. They said, this is it. This is the fulfillment of this. But the, ve- the best view is that these 10 horns are 10 people. They're 10 individuals or leaders. They're like a ruling commission or an oligarchy that will rule over the final form of the Roman Empire. The reason I say that is, in just a moment, we're going to look in verse 8 at another horn, a little horn that comes up. That little horn clearly is an individual. He's a person who blasphemes against God and, and stands against Him. So if the little horn is an individual, it makes sense to me the other ten horns are individuals as well. So it's telling us there's going to be a time in the future when the Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire, will be brought back together and ruled over by 10 people. We know that because the Roman Empire has never existed under the control of 10 leaders. So this has to be future. Uh, The Roman Empire was never destroyed and replaced by another empire like the previous ones. It was simply just divided up. And in the end times, Daniel tells us here, it's going to be restored and reconstituted and revived and reunited. And so we have here in verse uh, 7, kind of what I referred to when we studied Daniel 2 as a prophetic skip, where you go from the, the historic Roman Empire to an end time form of the Roman Empire that, that skips over this entire age. I've mentioned this to you before, so let me just read a verse that that says this, or another example of it, so you can see this in Scripture. Over in Zechariah 9, let me read there in that passage. You might write these verses down, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Jesus riding into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. Then the next verse says, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That didn't happen at Jesus' first coming. So there's a gap there between verse 9 and verse 10 of this entire age. And that's what we have here. We passed over 1,500 years of history. So this G10 or this group of 10 leaders is not present today, but the preparation's been going on for 70 years. And after World War II and finally all the fighting that had taken place in Europe over centuries, the nations of Europe decided that peace was better than war. You had groups like, again, the European Economic Community or the Common Market, and today we have the EU, which could be some kind of embryonic form of this final form of the Roman Empire. But what we see today is not the fulfillment of these passages, but it's a foreshadow of it. It's a preview and a setting the stage of these events. And it's interesting to me that as uh, the Roman Empire is kind of coming back together again in some senses, um, the nation of Israel has also been come into existence and being regathered. It began in 1948. Um, we, we have the, all this happening the same time globalism is rising. The same time that Russia and Iran are key players, as predicted in Ezekiel chapter 38. At the same time, Israel now is signing all these peace treaties with all these formerly hostile nations to them. It's all part of the stage setting for the end times, and we see a convergence of these signs and an acceleration of them. 
Like someone says, these are like runway lights that are lighting up as the coming of Christ approaches. Now, up to this point, Daniel chapter 2 parallels the medals and the image in Daniel, uh, and the, the, the image, the uh, beast in Daniel 7 parallel the medals in Daniel 2. But in verse 8, there's an addition. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. So there's a new feature added in Daniel 7 that's not in Daniel 2, and that's this little horn. And this represents the final world ruler that we know as the Antichrist. This is the first biblical reference to the person later described in the Bible as the Antichrist. First reference, a little horn comes up among these ten horns. So this is the initial prophecy about the Antichrist in Scripture. Now, we're going to meet the the Antichrist again in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and we'll spend a little more time talking about the Antichrist in chapter 11, verses 36 to 39. I mean, in some ways, the Antichrist, this little horn, is the key figure in Daniel 7 through 12, mentioned in almost every chapter. There's a lot of aliases. This is the first name given for him in the Bible, this little horn. In Daniel 9, he's going to be called the coming prince. Daniel 11, he's the willful king. I mean, in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of sin. Someone said this years ago, history began with the sin of man. It's going to end with the man of sin. Of course, in, in 1 John, he's called the Antichrist. Revelation 13, he's called the beast. He goes by a lot of different aliases. But he's going to be Satan's superman in the end times. Notice in verse 24, we have again the interpretation of this. As for the ten kings, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Remember it says earlier he's going to overthrow three of these other horns. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, there's a lot of things about him here in Daniel 7, and we're going to talk about the Antichrist later in chapter uh, Daniel chapter 11. But let me just mention a, little, a few things from this passage. First of all, he's going to arise from a reunited Roman Empire that's being ruled over by 10 leaders. This G10 is going to come. Now, one thing I always try to tell people is don't try to figure out who the Antichrist is today. Uh, being someone who studies prophecies, written about it, I get some of the craziest emails you could probably ever imagine um, about people who know all kinds of things about the future, but especially the Antichrist. Notice here, he's going to come as a little horn. He's going to rise insignificantly at first. He's not going to be some great well-known person. He's going to rise in insignificance before he comes to great power. And my view is he won't be revealed until after the rapture takes place. So I always make the statement, if you ever do figure out who the Antichrist is, I've got bad news for you. You've been left behind. You don't want to know uh, who the Antichrist is. Um, Another thing about him here, he's going to overthrow three of these ten leaders. These ten leaders, evidently three of them will stand in his way. He's going to uproot them or overthrow them. He's going to take over and rule the final world empire for three and a half years. Daniel 7.25 says they'll be given into his hand for time, that's one, times is two, and half a time obviously is a half. 
So time times and half a time is a three and a half year period. He's going to control the government, the religion, and the economy of the world. So a world government is coming, and that's not too hard to imagine uh, nowadays. And he's going to persecute believers on the earth during the tribulation period. It says he's going to wear down the saints of the Most High. He's going to oppress uh, believers. And you say, well, who are these believers? They're people who will come to faith in Christ after the rapture takes place during the tribulation period. We see the seeds of this today, even in our own country and around the world, as uh, more and more oppression of God's people is rising. Notice he'll be a boastful blasphemer. He's going to deify himself. He's going to blaspheme God and deify himself. And then it's interesting here, it says, he's going to intend to make alterations in times and in law. There's a lot of different thoughts about what this means, but isn't it interesting today, all the ideas about changing laws and changing times and getting rid of every vestige of the reminder of God. You know, the Bible tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work, and we see it in our world today laws and and being enacted to remove every vestige of truth and of God and of worship in our culture. You can intend to make alterations to the times and the laws. Well, there's a lot more we can say about the Antichrist. We'll, We'll talk more about him in chapter 11, but let me just mention a couple of important implications from these verses. Look, since the predictions about these first four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, all came true we can be sure that all the details of these final empires of the Antichrist and the kingdom of Jesus will come true as well. In other words, the Bible's got a track record here in this chapter of predicting the future with 100% accuracy. So we can know the parts that haven't been fulfilled will be literally fulfilled as well. And look, fulfilled prophecy proves the truth of the Bible. Many people today question and even mock the veracity and the inspiration of the Bible. And a lot of young people today are being sucked into all this stuff online. But let me just say to young people today, don't believe the skeptics and the doubters. The Bible predicts, in fact, there's 500 prophecies that have been fulfilled, predicted in Scripture. I mean, the Bible has the fingerprints of God all over it. And here's the question I always raise with people. If you leave the Word of God, where are you going to go? There's nowhere else to go. You can go wander the world and look for truth, and eventually at some point in time, you're going to end back, uh, end back up at the Word of God. People look at the Bible as some old, outdated book. The Bible tells us things that are happening in our day and things that will happen in the future. It's a self-authenticating book that validates its own claims. So trust the Word of God and believe it and anchor your life to it and the truths that are contained within it. The second thing I would say here is people are looking for somebody today to bring peace and order and prosperity to our world. Governments are gaining more and more authority over their citizens. And we can see how things like COVID have sped that up, and we see it in the economy. People looking more and more to political power to solve our problems. And again, all of this is setting the stage for a coming world ruler. I think the rapture is going to speed that up dramatically as the rapture takes place. People are going to be looking for someone who can bring chaos, order out of all the chaos. And another thing I would say here is this, God who's mapped out the future is able to handle the present. If God's mapped out the future, God can handle the present. I think I said this before we looked at Daniel 2, but 
If God has the whole world in his hands, God has your world in his hands, and he's got my world in his hands. We can trust him, uh, come what may, in our lives. Now, as we draw to a close this morning, I want to briefly preview where we'll pick up next time and leave us with a sense of hope, a pulsating hope. I don't want to leave us here talking about the Antichrist. Notice verse 9, I kept looking till thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The scene shifts dramatically now. We move from the Antichrist to the Ancient of Days. We move from this world to another world. We move from earth to the throne room of the universe. And our, our perspective is changed now from earth to heaven. And verses 1 through 10 of Daniel, you could say, of Daniel 7, is like looking at a split screen or like looking at two televisions with different programming on them at the same time. Now, back years ago, TVs still have this where you can watch a split screen and watch several things at once, but a lot of people now, I think, just have more than one TV. In somebody's house the other day got three TVs, you got to watch three different games or whatever is going on at once. But that's what we see here really in Daniel chapter 7 is a split screen or two different televisions, if you will, two different uh, uh, pictures. One is what's happening down here on the earth with these beasts, and the other is a scene in heaven of the Ancient of Days. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that that's a a, a pattern of the book of Revelation. There's alternating scenes. You'll go to heaven, to the throne room of God. Then you come back to earth. Then you go back to heaven again. Then you come back to earth. It ping-pongs back and forth from earth to heaven to show us that what's happening on earth is being controlled by God in heaven. And that's what Daniel's doing here. He transports us to the throne room of the universe. And this is one of the most striking theophanies in the Old Testament. And a theophany just means a, a visible manifestation of God. And we see here the Ancient of Days. This is the only time in the Bible the Ancient of Days is mentioned. It's uh, mentioned again down in verse 22. But Ancient of Days literally means the old one, the one who's been around forever. And it speaks here of the eternality of God. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in Revelation 4, 8, the creatures fly around the throne of God, and they never cease saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. The holiness and the, the sovereignty and the eternality of God. But this is the only verse in the Bible that pictures the first member of the Trinity in human form. And notice here it says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. I love this. The Ancient of Days is seated. He's never taken by surprise. I always like to say, you know, the the, the Trinity never meets in emergency session. There's never any panic in heaven. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. Human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity, military and diplomatic, but he's never taken by surprise, never undecided, never in a panic about his world. He sits, he does not stew. That's good, isn't it? God sits, he doesn't stew. Ultimate authority and power don't reside in Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or Washington or Moscow or Beijing. It's in the hands of God. And God sits, He doesn't stew. And a lot of us looking at this world today are doing a lot of stewing. 
We need to rest in who God is and his power over this world that he's created. This is the centerpiece of this chapter. It's the throne of God. That's the centerpiece of heaven and the centerpiece of history. I'll just mention this briefly, but his vestures like white snow speaks of his purity. The hair of his head is like pure wool, speaks of wisdom. His throne speaks of his majesty. The fire coming out speaks of his presence. As God's pictured in the Old Testament, the burning bush. It also speaks of his judgment. Notice it says that the wheels were like a burning fire. We won't have time to look at this, but if you want to read something beautiful, go over to Ezekiel chapter 1 this week and read that chapter where it pictures the throne chariot of God. God is on a throne, but his throne is on top of a chariot. And that's the passage. It talks about the wheels within the wheels. You have a wheel this way and a wheel that goes this way. In other words, it can move in any direction. So God's wheel, he he can move and he can bring judgment anywhere in the universe. It's, It's God seated on his throne chariot. So we see here the supremacy and the splendor of the Ancient of Days. He's eternal and he's holy and he's sovereign. And God holds court here. He's the chief justice of the universe, and someday he's going to hold court. And it says the books were opened because the Ancient of Days does everything, everything by the book. Here's what Joyce Baldwin says. The Most High is in control even when his opponents seem most successful. Therefore, all who are allied with him will triumph also. Once convinced of the truth that this chapter is proclaiming, the reader is in possession to the key of history. When you and I are convinced of the truth of this chapter, you and I possess the key of history. And then she goes on and says this, the international scene is not after all out of hand, for it is in God's hands. And individual lives find their meaning in relation to his kingdom. You and I find meaning in this life in relation to the kingdom of God that's coming to this earth. Once we're convinced of the the truths in this chapter, that the Ancient of Days is on his throne, and that the Son of Man is going to come and set up his kingdom on this earth, we have the key to history. and We gain meaning in our lives in relation to that coming kingdom. So no matter what dictators the Antichrist and Satan do on earth, God is on his throne and he judges and he rules. And you and I need to remember that. We need to to look often at the, the top of the split screen or look over at the other television and get this scene in heaven as we see what's happening here on the earth. There's a story, I think I've, I've told you all this before, but this is a good story. It says, on a balmy October afternoon in, 19, in 1982, probably about like today, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. MSU had the better team. What seemed odd, however, is as the score became more and more lopsided, the bursts of applause and shouts of joy from the Wisconsin fans grew. How could they cheer when their team was losing? It turned out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. Many of the fans in the stands were listening to portable radios and responding to something other than their immediate circumstances. Their team's getting creamed out there on the field, but they're tuned into a different frequency where their team uh, is winning. 
I want to ask all of us today, which screen are we focused on in life? Look, you and I look out at this world, and God wants us to care about this world. He wants us to vote. He wants us to pray. He wants us to be empathetic and compassionate and to be witnesses in this culture as the beasts are running wild. But God also wants us to look at the top half of the screen or to look at the other television, if you will, and to see the, the throne room in heaven where the Ancient of Days is seated there with a vesture as white as snow and hair like wool and sitting on his throne chariot with fire coming from it with millions upon millions surrounding him. Which game are you tuned into most of the time? Which game are you listening to? Are you focused on spiritual things or just the things of this world? Look, God is not in a stew. God is seated. And you and I need to remember that. We don't need to be in a stew about the things happening in our world as well. We need to care about them deeply. But we need to rest knowing that God's in control. Look up there. Our team is winning. And someday that victory is going to be brought down to this earth in Jesus Christ as He comes back to rule and reign. So my encouragement to all of you is when you begin to stew about what's happening in our world today, go to Daniel chapter 7 and look at the top half of the screen and see the Ancient of Days there seated on His throne, the one who's in control of everything and has it all in His hands. Praise be to God. May His name be praised forever. Well, let's pray together. As we go to prayer and as the band comes up to lead us in a final song, let me just say this. All of us here have an appointment someday with the Ancient of Days. The books are opened, and you and I know, all of us do, that we're sinners. The books are the record of all of our deeds. We can't stand before God in our sins. When those books are opened, if sins are there, we're going to be cast into the lake of fire. We have to have our sins forgiven. And the good news of the gospel is that God made him, he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's what you need to do. And the moment you trust him, your record in heaven will be wiped clean. And the very righteousness of Jesus Christ will be credited to your account. If you've never trusted in Jesus, that's what you need to do today. So that someday when the books are opened, the slate will be clean. And God will view you in the very righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Trust Him now if you've never done that. He died for you. He rose again. He's your only hope for life and salvation and forgiveness of sin. And Father, I pray for all of us here today as we look out and we see the, the beasts running wild in our culture, that you'll help us to look at the top half of the screen often, that you'll fill us with hope. We see the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. Oh, Father, give us hope. Give us courage. Fill us with your hope today. We ask these things in Jesus' name.